Mental health is just like physical health. It exists and we need to recognize it. Do you know anything about working here in the UK as a psychiatrist? Question that didn't quite make sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm Sam. Welcome back to the Dog Whisperers. This is Dr. Al. He did his medical and 20 years of psychiatric training in the UK, currently teaching in Newcastle University Medicine Malaysia or UMAC. He's approachable, very funny, and of course, has a really sexy voice. Mental health problems can be really frustrating, can be frightening, can be upsetting. So in this episode, we are going to talk about mental health among medical students and healthcare practitioners because we need to learn to take care of ourselves too. Just a disclaimer, the views, thoughts and opinions expressed do not represent any organization or group. Let's not waste time, let's get into the questions. Hello. Thank you very much for coming up to our podcast. Thank you. So the first question for you, because you have worked in the UK and here in Malaysia as a psychiatrist. So do you find any differences? There are quite a lot of differences, actually, between working in psychiatry in the UK and here in Malaysia. One of the first things, I suppose, is that in the UK, we have a lot of community-based services. Mm. So patients are looked after by community teams. They're often seen at home. They're seen in outpatient clinics that are closer to where they live rather than in hospitals. Um, and the service is delivered much more um, closer to the patient's home. That's very good. Whereas in Malaysia, I think what we have is a largely hospital-based service. There are inpatient units located in the psychiatric hospitals. And then there are also psychiatric beds in some of the general hospitals. And there are huge outpatient clinics here in Malaysia because yeah. everybody comes to the general hospital when there's something the matter with them, whether that's physical or psychological. Okay. So in terms of these two places, is there one that you prefer? I suppose when I first qualified as a psychiatrist, because I'm a Malaysian, I was still quite anxious about returning to Malaysia because what yeah. I had heard was large asylums, mm. you know, quite an old-fashioned incarceration model of treatment. Yes. Whereas the UK clearly was a much more open, much more liberal, community-based service. So I suppose that was the reason why I didn't come back originally. <laughs> I thought that I would struggle to fit into how psychiatry operates here. I must say, though, that I have been impressed with how the local clinicians work, mm. and I have nothing but a huge amount of respect for them. Okay. The first thing is that they work in quite difficult circumstances. The buildings in which they work in aren't perhaps always fit for purpose, yep. but they try very hard. They're extremely busy. I don't think I have seen outpatient clinics as busy as they are here, where patients get called so quickly yep. and where the turnover of patients is relatively large. So 
I have a lot of admiration for the staff. Bravo. One, one of the things I admire them the most for is the mastery of languages. <laughs> yeah. So that in order to work in Malaysia, you certainly need to be able to speak Bahasa quite well. And then if you can speak one of the other languages, such as Mandarin, Hokkien or Tamil, that's even better. Mm -hmm. And I'm amazed when I sit in with local clinicians, how they can switch from one language to another. I have been looking forward to the opportunity to brush up again my Bahasa skills and to improve on my pretty poor Tamil speaking skills. Oh. So I'm enjoying doing all that. So I think to think in a particular language, then to communicate to a patient in another language, to translate it back into your head and write mm -hmm. it down on electronic case notes, and then have a discussion with a patient <laughs> about a treatment plan and prescribe medication, I think it's quite a challenge. And I think they all yes. do it extremely well. Yeah. Bravo to the Malaysian doctors. Absolutely. <laughs> Bravo to the Malaysian doctors. I would struggle to do that. But thank you very much for the mm. compliment of the Malaysian doctors. That comes to my next question. So we are sort of different in these two places, these two countries. So do you know the pathway to become a psychiatrist? Let's start with the UK. The UK path is quite straightforward for psychiatric training. So you qualify in medicine, then you do two years of the foundation program. And one of the advantages of the UK foundation program is that most foundation doctors I think the figure is probably about 75 or 80 yes. percent, will have the opportunity to do a psychiatric job as part of the foundation program. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good because it gives people exposure to mental health issues in a whole variety of settings. And from my point of view, it's good because it helps with recruiting doctors into psychiatry. Once you've made up your mind at the end of the foundation years that psychiatry is for you and that's what you want to do, then you apply for core training in psychiatry and this is for three years, and you do six-month jobs across all the psychiatric specialties. So this would be general adult, old age, forensic, substance misuse, child and adolescent, and learning disabilities. So that would take you three years. And in that three-year time, you prepare for and pass the MRC psych exam. Okay. So at the end of core training, you have three years of psychiatric experience under your belt. You have the MRC psych, and then you apply for what we call higher specialty training. And this takes a period of, again, three or four years, depending on which specialty you want to do. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, a lot of trainees are wanting to do what we call dual accreditation. So maybe in general adult and in old age, in which case you would do four years of training. And now this would be at a much more senior level. You would be supervised by a consultant still, but the supervision will be a little bit remote. You'll be given much more autonomy and independence. You'd be given time to undertake research, time to teach medical students, yeah. time to do audit projects and other things that might interest yes. you. A specialist trainee is allowed to um, have special interest sessions. Yes. So if you want to do liaison or neuropsychiatry, this is the time to do it. So. After those three years, you get your Certificate of Completed Training, the so-called CCT, which then allows you to apply for consultant posts when you yes. become an independent but team-based practitioner. So to summarize, it's two years of foundation plus three years uh, of uh, experience. And then, then you take the exam during these three years, take to five, and then special interest for four years. Yeah, three to four years. Three to four years. Yeah. So the fastest time that you can get to become a psychiatrist in the UK is about nine years. 
Yeah, eight to nine years. Eight if you do two years. plus three plus three, that would be eight. Okay. Yeah. So then how about Malaysia? Do you know anything about Malaysia? I don't know a vast amount about Malaysia, but I think what tends to happen in Malaysia is clearly the system isn't geared up for the MRC psych exams, yeah. but you do a master's degree in psychological medicine. And my understanding is that that is a four-year program, mm -hmm. and that gives you... Um, exposure to working in a variety of hospitals so you move around i think annually malaysia of course has only the four big psychiatric hospitals, hospitals. Um, bahagia and Permai in the peninsula and Masra and sentosa in east malaysia so um, that's where you gain your experience i think you do a dissertation you get awarded the master's degree and then of course in malaysia you have to apply to be included in the national specialist register the nsr and once you've done that, then I think you're eligible to apply for a consultant post. I think my understanding from talking to local trainees is that the bottleneck seems to be in getting a place onto a master's training program. And I think that can be quite competitive. Very competitive. In fact, it's very hard, actually. But roughly, do you know how long does it take um, to complete a master program and to become a psychiatrist? Well, I think, I mean, that probably takes four or five years. Okay. So if you assume you've done one year as a houseman, that two you, years, yeah. Two years, okay. You might have done another two years of your compulsory service as an MO, yeah. and then you do four to five years of training. That is about the same, isn't it? Yeah. Eight to nine years of postgraduate yeah. training. Okay. Thank you very yeah. much for that. talk about the pathway to become a psychiatrist. Now we're going to go into a topic that is getting a lot of attention recently. It's about the mental health among the medical students or medical professionals. Okay, let's talk about medical students first. Do you have any personal experience of dealing with medical students with mental health conditions? I think the important point to make, first of all, is that we are all human, whether we are medical students or whether we are doctors. And we share the vulnerabilities that everybody else does to mental illness. Definitely. I know more about mental illness in doctors. And we know, for example, that there are a good number of doctors who suffer from depressive disorders and bipolar disorder is probably one of the most common disorders in the medical profession. My own experience of those doctors is that they are very good doctors, they're very capable of looking after and treating their patients, and there is usually no um, safety reasons to be concerned whatsoever about them. I think the important thing for doctors with mental health problems is a degree of self-awareness. So you need to be able to know when you're becoming unwell, what the warning signs are, what the early symptoms are, and you then need to latch into help services that yes. anybody else would do and get it sorted out. I was always told by one of the consultants I worked for that when you treat doctors, you should treat them like any other patients. Mm -hmm. Because if you start treating doctors in a special way, that's when you begin to make mistakes. And I think that's absolutely true. So you treat them as every as you would any other patient, you carry out your thorough assessment, including risk assessments, mm -hmm. because as you know, doctors are at higher risk of self-harm and suicide. Do all those risk assessments and treat them as you would do everybody else, all your other patients. I mean, I think you do need to be aware of one or two things which can come 
to affect doctors perhaps more than other people. And I think substance misuse and clearly alcohol and drinking is one of those. There often is a medical school culture in the UK of heavy drinking, then carries on into um, foundation years. And then given the stresses and strains of working shifts and moving jobs every four months, there can be a tendency, I think, for people to resort to drink much more than they would like. So again, drinking heavily can be a major problem amongst doctors and for that matter, amongst medical students. And I think they need to be able to um, deal with that, recognize it first of all, and then deal with it. Yes, of course, there are many factors that can cause a doctor or a medical student uh, having all these disorders. But there's this one question asked from the, by the audience. Mm. They say, at least in Malaysia at least, doctors, housemen especially, they get a lot of verbal abuse from their superiors. And other than the stress of the working shift and all, they get all this stress. So what do you think they can do as a houseman? Well, I think, first of all, I need to say that I'm sorry that they experience that degree yeah. of um, verbal harassment and bullying. But I think it seems to be quite ingrained as part of the culture in Malaysian hospitals. And I think in the long term that needs to change. But how that is changed is a question for um, the Ministry of Health and all the current senior doctors. What we want to do, I think, is try and make people as resilient and as robust as they can possibly be so that they will be able to take some of these difficulties on the chin. Um, And I think what each individual doctor needs to create for him or herself is a supportive network of people. So that can be your fellow peers, other doctors, it can be family members who you can talk to, or it could be friends who have nothing whatsoever to do with medicine. But some kind of network of people who you can um, vent and rage at and who will listen to you carefully and help you, I think, through those difficulties. And my hope is that in time, those sorts of issues will diminish. But I think it's very difficult. And I think what hap- the other thing which I've noticed happens in Malaysia is that when you subject junior doctors and trainees to that sort of pressure, then when they become the senior doctors, they feel the need, I think, to exert some kind of revenge. And the whole cycle then <laughs> repeats It's a vicious itself. cycle, definitely. Yeah, so it needs to be broken in some way. Okay, and this is the way that you suggest get a very good supportive network. Yes. Okay. on to a segment, a common segment that we will do with our episodes coming up, which is called Me, 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 me. Okay, so these are a few myths that we have. So the first one, they say that, and many people believe that, if one has mental health condition, it will damage their career prospect. And if you're a medical student, you're deemed to be unfit to practice. What do you think about that? Well, I think that is a myth and that, as I've already made the point, that doctors with mental illness are on the whole excellent doctors. They look after the patients very well. What they may not be so good at is looking after themselves well. So they need to be able to recognize when they're becoming unwell and the employment system that they're in needs to be supportive to allow them to have time off when they need a bit of time and space to recover from a mental illness. And then they need to have access to the same services that everybody else would do. We need to make it plain to people that it won't count against them. And I think UK employment culture 
is very geared up now to what we call protected characteristics, you know, that mm-hmm. if you have a mental illness, then your employer has to make reasonable allowances to allow you to carry on to do your job. I think perhaps in Malaysia, it's a bit more harsh. That's why I heard. Therefore, patients may be, or doctors may be a bit more reluctant to acknowledge that they have a mental illness and mm-hmm. not seek help for it in time. Yeah, that will come to my next myth because they think that as a medical student, they have the pride. They don't want to show the sign of weakness because seeking help is a sign of weakness. So what do you think about that? I mean, I suppose the whole thing about mental illness is that it's an unseen pathology. Yes. I mean, if you broke a leg, you would have no hesitation about going to see an orthopedic consultant to have it fixed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think similarly, if you're suffering distress, anxiety, you know, deep down depression, low mood or elevated mood or whatever, then you still need to regard that as a symptom for which you need to seek medical help. Mm-hmm. And I think doctors are more open. I mean, I know for a fact, for example, at HSI, that there is a special clinic run mm-hmm. by one of the psychiatrists okay. to which medical staff are referred. And I think that works quite well, because then you're seeing somebody who understands the difficulties and the tricky environment in which you're working who can then be more supportive. I think you need to recognize it and you must seek seek help because I think the consequences of not doing that are that you just become more and more unwell and that eventually you'll be lost to the medical workforce, which is a shame for the individual and for the nation. Okay, so let's put ourselves in a scenario. I'm a medical student and I have some mental health problems, but I'm so afraid to tell the university, okay, because I'm afraid that this will be recorded and I'm thinking of private consultation and it costs a lot of money. So what can we do if I'm that student? Well, I mean, I think one shouldn't worry so much about private consultations. I've already told you that I have a lot of respect for the clinicians working in the psychiatric clinics in the government hospitals. So I don't see why a student can't refer themselves to such a clinic. As you know, at Hospital Sultan Ismail, the there is a more or less a walk-in clinic on a Sunday where anybody can take themselves uh, to be assessed. And I think cost must not put you off. And clearly, if you're seeking help elsewhere, you don't necessarily have to inform the university authorities that you're having treatment for whatever the mental health condition is, unless it is beginning to impair your performance as a medical mm. student. And I think if that is the case, then you probably do have to share confidentially with um, the student officers and the student support people within the university that this is what you're going through. And I think it's important for them to know because they might be able to be more sympathetic. You might have some extension on deadlines. Um, There might be some special considerations. I know you're all familiar with mitigating circumstances and those sorts of things for exams. But I think it's important to share that with somebody. And I don't believe that in the university as such, it would count against you, it wouldn't be a black mark against you. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think it would be the reverse, that if you'd failed to recognize the mental illness in yourself and had carried on doggedly, you know, treating patients and then something happens, I think there'll be more serious consequences to that than having treatment in the first place. Yeah, exactly. I personally think that if you're willing to get help and you will get well, and that won't affect your fitness to practice. Do you you agree to that? I agree, yes. Yes. And the General Medical Council in the UK has quite a lot of provisions for sick doctors Mm -hmm. where they would 
often if there's been a serious complaint or something like that, the GMC will appoint a psychiatrist or a doctor from another specialty to actually be as a to be a mentor for that doctor yeah, and to yeah. contact them from time to time, make sure how they're getting on and yes. to review and monitor their progress. Okay, yeah, thank you. So next, it comes to our next myth. Because I have seen people when they have a mental health problems and you see the people around them tell you that you should be positive, watch more positive videos, you can do it, just be strong, be tough and you will solve all the mental disorders. What do you think about that? Well, in my opinion, I think people with mental disorders have already done all those things. Yeah, exactly. So they've exactly. watched the videos, they've spoken to their friends, exactly. they've spoken to their families. So clearly the illness or the pathology has got to such a point where they're no longer able to do that for themselves. And I think that is a warning sign that they need to seek external help. Because I think sometimes, as you know, from some of the mental illnesses, you don't yourself see how impaired or how much distress and suffering it's causing you and it's people around you who will notice that so i think you have it's not a weakness it's an illness like any other and i think we need to move away from the mindset that mental illness is somehow your own fault or simply because you weren't robust enough that you've become mentally unwell because we know that that's clearly not true okay then this is for the people out there please take note so one more uh, last myth it says that once you get a mental health condition, you will never fully recover, which means that it will come back again. What do you think? This is really one of the myths that has been around for a long time in psychiatry. And it's one of the things which puts medical students off wanting to pursue a career in psychiatry because they say psychiatrists don't get people better. I mean, I think on the whole, psychiatrists do. I mean, it depends what conditions you're dealing with. So conditions like depression are quite easily treated. Others, for example, like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, are long-term health conditions which can be controlled, um, which can be kept at bay without necessarily being cured. So I think with those sorts of conditions, you're clearly vulnerable to a relapse. So okay. you need to be very aware of what sort of things are likely to cause those relapses and learn how to avoid them and use medication sensibly to keep yourself well. There are some conditions like um, dementia, which of course are progressive degenerative conditions. And although we can't cure it, we can provide a lot of support. We can treat symptoms that come along the way. And we focus a lot of our attention on families and carers okay. and a lot of effort to keep them going. So I think psychiatrists do get people better. I think when you're a medical student, one of the reasons you don't see it is because psychiatric conditions probably take a longer time to get better. Yeah. And psychiatric placements as medical students tend to be quite short. So you don't have the opportunity to see people actually get better. Okay. So to put it simply, um, can I say that we won't really fully recover, but what we can do is try to not let it, let it relapse? Yes, I think that's fair for some conditions, certainly yeah. bipolar disorders and schizophrenia. You want to have relapse prevention is the main goal rather than cure. Because I read some research papers saying that the most common, the common ones, uh, mental health disorders among the, the healthcare workers is depression and anxiety. So what can you say about these two? Well, I mean, I think depression and anxiety are treatable conditions. Fully. Yes. In some people, it might linger on and it might become more chronic. But I think with the right treatment, 
the vast majority of people with depression and anxiety disorders will recover. And by that, I mean a combination of psychological approaches and pharmacotherapy. Thank you, Dr. Al. have some question by the audience. So hi, I'm Caroline and today I have some questions from the audience. I'll be reading it out. So the first one is, what is the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist in terms of job scope? Okay, a psychiatrist, as you know, is a trained medical doctor. Um, so we have done the full medical training that all your colleagues will have done. So we are trained to assess people whether they have a mental illness. And then we're also trained um, and have experience in treating that mental illness, often with medication. So we are able to prescribe. A psychologist, on the other hand, works with people who are often at a much less intense end of the spectrum. So they might still have anxiety disorders, but not to the point where it needs um, pharmacotherapy or more intensive investigations. Um, to get them better. So a psychologist is much more concerned with restoring a patient's thinking yes. to a normal pattern. And psychologists often may suggest behavioral techniques. Mm -hmm. And as you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is very common. They might do relaxation techniques. They might do biofeedback, breathing exercises, yes. and all those sorts of things to get people better. So a psychologist, I suppose, deals with the lesser end of the mental disorder spectrum, yes. and psychiatrists deal with proper good-going mental illnesses. And what you will know, of course, is that there is a profound interaction between psychological health and physical health. So we know that people with physical disorders develop mental health conditions mm -hmm. and people with psychological problems also have more in the way of physical health physical. difficulties. So the psychiatrist, I think, is ideally placed to deal with that in a way that a psychologist wouldn't, simply because they've not had all that training in physical medicine. Just to emphasize, uh, I think that both are equally important. They team, are important. Yeah. And if you go to most places, there will be a team of professionals responsible for treating somebody with a mental illness, which will include a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Exactly. Multidisciplinary team. Indeed, indeed. Okay, this is question two and also the last question. What are the effective ways of calming a person down when he or she is attempting suicide or deliberate self-harm? What do you think, doctor? Well, I think to calm someone down who's thinking about deliberate self-harm or suicide, the key always is to get them to open up and talk, isn't it? So we need to be able to spend some time with the person, get them to trust you, to a point where they're able to explain to you really what's going on in their head. So they need to be willing to disclose that. And I think we know that there are a lot of agencies around that can do that. We have befrienders, you know, people at the end of a telephone. Yes. We have organizations like Samaritans and so on, where people talk to someone who is thinking about ending it all. So I think that human contact is probably the most important. And once you've made the human contact, you build up trust with somebody, they open up to you, and then you might be able to suggest alternatives, things that they might do, or ways that they might look at things, their situation differently, so that they no longer harbor those thoughts those of self-harm suicide. 
And to summarize all this, so we can say that suffering alone in silence is definitely not the way to do. Absolutely not. No. Yeah, and seeking help is the way. Yes. Okay. So before we end, and I have, uh, because you are so wise and all, doctor, so can I ask for some advice from you? Okay, this is for the students mm. going through medical school now with exam, okay, stress, uh, not getting good results, even though they put in 200% of effort. And if they suffer from mental health problems, what is the advice you can give to them? The first thing I would say to them is that they need to tell somebody about it, be it their own doctors or the student support facilities available on the university, because mm -hmm. a lot of these issues can be dealt with. And we can teach students actually coping strategies to lessen the anxiety that's brought about by impending exams and the workload, okay. the sheer amount of things they have to get to. But they just need to say that these are problems. And I think the main difficulty, as you've already hinted at, is to come forward and say, exactly. and to realize that it's not a sign of weakness, mm -hmm. but that if you know what's going on within your own head, then I think you'll become a much more useful doctor to your patients in the future. Okay, thank you, Dr. Al. The next one is for the students who wants to become a psychiatrist. Because if you talk about a requirement just now, but what are the things that they can do to give them an upper hand to become a psychiatrist? Like what you say, it's very hard to get into the, the placement. So what are the things that they can do? I suppose speaking from my own experience, I think psychiatry continues to be a fascinating subject because we don't fully understand really how the brain works and how it interacts with the body. So it's fascinating from that point of the view. There's plenty of research to do. It needs to be understood more. I enjoy psychiatry because it allows you to listen to patients' stories over a longer period of time. It allows you to build up your relationship with yes. them. And I think one of the key differences in between psychiatry and other medical disorders is that in psychiatry, the psychiatrist is part of the treatment. Mm. So we are a part of the treatment. So what we do and what we say is part of the treatment as far as the patient <laughs> is concerned. Um, so if that's the side of medicine that appeals to you, then I think you should seriously consider a career in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And within psychiatry itself, as I've already hinted, there are so many subspecialties that you can get involved, such as liaison psychiatry, neuropsychiatry, child and adolescent, forensic, old age. So there's bound to be a niche within the world of psychiatry for mm -hmm. someone who is genuinely interested, I think, in helping psychiatric patients. Can I debunk two other myths that are associated Perfecto. with okay medical students not wanting to do psychiatry. We've already <laughs> talked about one, which yeah. is the fact that they think psychiatrists don't get patients better. The first myth is that psychiatrists are woolly, that we're not able to think clearly, and that we're not scientific enough. So I think we need to show medical students that there is a lot of science that underpins psychiatry and all of the treatments and so on that we give. Mm -hmm. One of the things we have, I think, or that we struggle with in psychiatry is the fact that it's quite difficult to measure outcomes in psychiatry. And therefore yes, that yes. weakens some of the evidence base that we have. But psychiatrists are, at the end of the day, medical and scientific, and so they're not woolly thinkers. And the second reason why a lot of medical students don't become psychiatrists is bad mouthing by other consultants. <laughs> yes, others. that's very true. And I think 
some of you may have come across it yourselves. You know, they might say things like, why is somebody like you, you know, who's so good at the bedside, why would you want to go off and become a psychiatrist? Mm. Um, the answer to that question is that psychiatry needs people with a broad range of skills who are willing to listen to their patients and help them from a psychological point of view. Take note. And that's a very worthwhile thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I have found psychiatry fun and I have absolutely no regret about choosing psychiatry. And if I was to repeat the whole thing all over again, <laughs> you would I'd do probably it. choose psychiatry again. Wow. Yes. Okay. That is a very big thing coming from you, Dr. Al. And we talk about science just now, okay, because we have, uh, there, there, are, there are people who say that psychotherapy doesn't work. Pharmacotherapy, SSRI, which is a medication for depression, doesn't work. Um, So what do you say about it? Well, psychotherapy does work because we know that patients given psychological treatments improve. And there have been some studies that have actually looked at changes to brain structure following psychotherapy. And there's quite clear evidence that just a talking therapy on its own can cause changes to neuronal networks and the wiring within the brain that brings about clinical improvement. So we don't understand quite how that link works, but that link is an important one. So psychotherapy can bring about structural changes within the brain that can bring about clinical improvement. So we mustn't throw out the baby with the bathwater and say that (laughs) just because psychotherapy doesn't produce sort of clear changes within the organism, you know, biological changes, that it's a waste of time. How about medications? Well, with medications, we have a slightly more clear idea, I think, about how medications work because we understand neurotransmitters and receptors and where they have their actions. But it is not totally understood. I mean, we still operate on various hypotheses as to what's causing depression and schizophrenia. And we aim our treatment strategies to what we believe is the underlying pathology, even though that has never been has never been strikingly demonstrated or definitively demonstrated. That's all for our questions for today. Thank you very so, much. Thank you very much, Dr. L. Um, then is there anything that you want to tell us? Instead, you have given a lot of advice, but is there anything that you want to tell us? Well, I think the key thing to tell you is that all of medicine, whether you become psychiatrists or not, is fun. And I think you should enjoy your career to do it. And in order to enjoy a career, you need to find out where your special niche is, you know, which branch of medicine you feel the most comfortable with and where you will gain a lot of satisfaction. Because you youngsters are going to be working for 30 or 40 years, so you need to be convinced that what you're doing is something you will enjoy and is worthwhile. Okay, so find your calling. Yes, Yes. indeed, find your calling, yes. Okay, and that's the end of our podcast. So thank Thank you very much. Thank you. for the conversation with Dr. Al. Before we end, there are a couple of kind souls actually sending messages to share their journey fighting mental health problems. And I believe we should all listen to them. Message number one. There was a time when I was having a lot of family issues. It wasn't a new thing. In fact, 
that has been there for the past 10 years. But med school with all these problems just made me broke down. I could be the happiest person you have ever met, easily laugh at jokes and always happy, but when I came home with all these problems all alone, I could cry until my eyes were swollen. But I'll still be fine the next day. I really wanted to talk about these problems to somebody and I tried to speak about this to my best friends. They tried giving solutions and finding ways to cheer me up. In fact, I felt that they were a bit scared to face someone like me, who suddenly poured out my emotions to them. They don't know how they could help me. But I'm still thankful they made the effort to cheer me up. It was when I was in the first few years of med school. Until now, thanks to people who constantly showed care to me, I'm totally fine now. The message is, don't panic or try to cheer someone up when they start crying in front of you. Listen carefully what they want to say. Just listen, give hugs. You don't really have to say anything, it's just so simple. And a little bit more care could change a person's day. Give them strength to face their problems. Message number two, be patient with yourself. It will be a long journey to recovery. In fact, I don't think I have fully recovered. I do still have my bad days, and bad thoughts still come to my head on certain days. But now I know how to detect those warning signs and how to deal with them. Initially, I thought that I would be fine after a month, or maybe a few months. But depression isn't like common cold when you eat medications, rest, and recover in a few days. The road to recovery will be long and filled with ups and downs. There are days when I'm slowly feeling better and got happier, knowing that I'm recovering and I won't feel so down again. But the next moment, I crashed, bringing all my hopes down. But it doesn't matter, because one day, you will realize that you are much better from where you started. Message end. Whoever you are, and no matter where you are now, I hope you are doing fine and thank you for your insights because I learned something new today. And for the audience listening to this podcast, I hope you did too. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at dot underscore whisperers for any updates and feel free to drop us any questions. You can listen to our other episodes on Spotify, Apple iTunes or Google Podcast. And if you have enjoyed our podcast, please do share with the people you know and... See you next time. Bye.